Today we have Genesis 36 and 37. These are the generations of Esau, that is Edom. Esau took his wives from the Canaanites, Ada the daughter of Elon the Hittite, Oholibamah the daughter of Anah the daughter of Zibion the Hivite, and Basimoth Ishmael's daughter, the sister of Nebaioth. And Ada bore to Esau Eliphaz, Basmith bore Ruel, and Aholibamah bore Jeush, Jalem, and Korah. These are the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the members of his household, his livestock, all his beasts, and all his property that he had acquired in the land of Canaan. And he went into a land away from his brother Jacob, for their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. The land of their sojournings could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau settled in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom. These are the generations of Esau, the father of the Edomites, in the hill country of Seir. These are the names of Esau's sons. Eliphaz, the son of Ada, the wife of Esau. Ruel, the son of Basimoth, the wife of Esau. The sons of Eliphaz were Teman, Omar, Zepho, Gatim, and Kenaz. Timnah was a concubine of Eliphaz, Esau's son. She bore Amalek to Eliphaz. These are the sons of Ada, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Ruel, Nahath, Zerah, Shammah, and Mizah. These are the sons of Basimoth, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Olibamah, the daughter of Anah, the daughter of Zibion, Esau's wife. She bore to Esau, Jeush, Jalem, and Korah. These are the chiefs of the sons of Esau. The sons of Eliphaz, the firstborn of Esau. The chiefs, Teman, Omar, Zepho, Kenaz, Korah, and Gatim, and Amalek. These are the chiefs of Eliphaz in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Ada. These are the sons of Ruel, Esau's son, the chiefs Nahath, Zerah, Shammah, and Mizah. These are the chiefs of Ruel in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Basimoth, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Aholibamah, Esau's wife, the chiefs Jeush, Jalem, and Korah. These are the chiefs born of Olibamah, the daughter of Anah, Esau's wife. These are, these are the sons of Esau, that is Edom, and these are their chiefs. These are the sons of Seir, the Horite, the inhabitants of the land, Lotan, Shobal, Zibion, Ena, Dishan, Ezer, and Dishan. These are the chiefs of the Horites, the sons of Seir in the land of Edom. The sons of Lotan were Hori and Himam, and Lotan's sister was Timnah. These are the sons of Shobal, Alvin, Manahath, Ebal, Shepho, and Onam. These are the sons of Zibion, Eha, Ea, Ena, and he is the Ena who found the hot springs in the wilderness as he pastured the doggies of Zibion, his father. These are the children of Ena, Dishan, Oholibamah, the daughter of Ena, and these are the sons of Dishan, Hemda, Eshban, Ethran, and Karan. These are the sons of Ezer, Bilhan, Zavan, and Achan. These are the sons of Dishan, Uz, and Aran. These are the chiefs of the Horites, the chiefs Lotan, Shobal, Zibion, Ena, Dishan, Ezer, and Dishan. 
These are the chiefs of the Horites, chief by chief, in the land of Seir. These are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom, before any king reigned over the Israelites. Bela, the son of Beor, reigned in Edom, the name of his city being Dinhaba. Bela died, and Jobab, the son of Zerah of Basra, reigned in his place. Jobab died, and Husham, in the land of the Temanites, reigned in his place. Husham died, and Hadad, the son of Bedad, who defeated Midian in the country of Moab, reigned in his place, and the name of his city being Avith. Hadad died, and Samla of Mazrikad reigned in his place. Samla died, and Shal of Rehoboth on the Euphrates reigned in his place. Shal died, and Baal-Hanan, the son of Akbor, reigned in his place. Baal-Hanan, the son of Akbor, died, and Hadar reigned in his place, the name of his city being Pau. His wife's name was Mehedabel, the daughter of Matrid, the daughter of Mezahab. These are the names of the chiefs of Esau, according to their clans and their dwelling places, by their names, the chiefs Timnah, Alva, Jatheth, Oholibama, Elah, Panan, Kanaz, Timon, Mezbar, Magdiel, Aram, and these are the chiefs of Edom, that is, Esau, the father of Edom, according to their dwelling places in the land of their possession. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being seventeen years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than any, of his, any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. He made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered round it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem, and Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now and see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, where he came to Shechem, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, They've gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. 
They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we'll say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead, and with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by. And they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, I, where shall I go? And then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify it, whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son, mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Hear the word of the Lord. I really did have a great time praying with so many of you last Sunday, but we, we had probably more people turn out for that prayer meeting than we've had in a very long time. Um, and it was focused, if you weren't aware, on personal evangelism, on praying for folks that we want to be able to share Jesus with this year. So I'm excited for that to continue and encourage you to visit the wall in the foyer uh, just to see the names and, and envision the faces of the people that we're praying for. As we approach this chapter, there is an, an all-too-predictable pattern that I want to review with you, and I think it goes like this. <clears throat> Step one, confidence. I am God. Through grit and determination, I will achieve prosperity and hold back the tide of suffering. It tends to last for some time and is more often found in young people. (laughs) Step two, discouragement. Other people are God. 
no matter how hard I try, forces outside my control keep knocking me back down this ladder of success that I've been seeking to climb. Step three, disillusionment. There is no God. At least not in any sort of meaningful sense where some kind of all-powerful being is in charge of the universe. I mean, just, just look around at how many bad things happen to good people. Look, look at all the suffering and evil in the world today. Why should I bother with all this following Jesus stuff when people that, that have no interest in anything related to him seem to be doing just fine for themselves? And people who are trying to follow him seem to suffer as much, if not more so, than everyone else. You ever heard that? Or thought that? Or felt that? I don't, I don't think it matters what I do or don't do. There, I think there is no meaning. I think there is no purpose. I, I think there's just randomness. Chance wins. You realize we're swimming in that, right? I mean, I hope when you come in, church, to hear the word of God, that, that you don't just check out your awareness of the world we live in. Okay, because the whole point of God's word is that it would connect truth to life, real life. And if you've ever felt that sense of total disillusionment, no, you are not the first. You're not the first. A man named Asaph once said as much in Psalm 73, verse 13, all in vain have I kept my heart clean. And washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. I'm, I'm suffering. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Think, think step three, disillusionment. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. And then I discerned therein. What is the sanctuary of God? It's the place where the people of God are gathered under the word of God, right? It, it's the place where God speaks, the place where God reveals, the, the place where he exposes the fatal cracks in our view of the world and urges and calls us to embrace reality, what's actually true, and friends, the account of, of Esau and Jacob and Joseph, Jacob's son, in Genesis 36 and 37, it does exactly that. It's, it's a gift from God designed to impart to us the very same thing that God eventually imparted to Asaph. You know what that's called? Wisdom. <laughs> Wisdom. So listen carefully because here's the central message of these chapters that at first listen may have seemed utterly disconnected to you. They, they are not. Your world 
is not the product of chance. Okay? It's not the product of chance. Even the prosperity of his enemies and the suffering of his people are both directed to their appointed end by the hidden providence of God. That's the point. Your world is not the product of chance, friend. I I don't know what you believe about Jesus or what you even think about me reading from this book this morning, but I know this. Your world isn't the product of chance. In other words, the very things we so quickly throw in God's face, right, as proof that he's not trustworthy. What do we throw in his face? The prosperity of the wicked and the suffering of the righteous. These chapters teach us that those two things inevitably serve to confirm his sovereign rule over all things. The prosperity of the wicked and the suffering of the righteous are not weaknesses or problems with the providence of God. To the contrary, they support it, are explained by it, and are subject to it. And I love how question 10 in the Heidelberg Catechism defines the providence of God. Listen, providence is the almighty and ever-present power of God by which he upholds as with his hand heaven and earth and all creatures and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things in fact come to us not by chance but from his fatherly hand. And this whole last section of the book of Genesis, which really launches a 14-chapter section that's just going to end with the end of the book in chapter 50, it is all about, especially the story of Joseph, the providence of God. It's all about the providence of God. For several months, we're just going to park on the providence of God. And I believe that these two chapters reveal his providence in two ways. So here we go. Number one, those who turn away from the Lord will prosper. When I emailed my notes to our translation team last night, they texted back immediately and said, did you write the first point wrong? (laughs) I said, no, I did not, but I know why you're concerned. So if you just freaked out on the inside, listen carefully. Listen carefully, okay? The opening words of Genesis 36 announce the beginning of a new section. So what does it say? These are the generations of Esau. So to say these are the generations of someone all throughout Genesis, those are like the chapter markers, is to say this is what became of someone. So it it turns our attention to the legacy of their descendants. So what became of Isaac's oldest son Esau? Well, verse 2 of chapter 36, look there, points us in the right direction. Esau took his wives from the Canaanites. Guys, the kind of women that you choose to marry 
reveals more than almost anything else the true condition of your heart. It reveals what you value, what you love, what you find desirable, what's attractive in your eyes. And Genesis repeatedly indicts the women of Canaan for their spiritual idolatry. So that they were pagans. They they had no interest in worshiping the Lord, the God of Abraham and Isaac. And nor did Esau. Which is why he married them. And yet, he still experiences a real measure of the blessing of God. Think about this. He had five sons and ten grandsons. Of those 15 men, 14 became chiefs, wielding significant tribal power and authority. And toward the end of the genealogy, Genesis 36, a series of eight kings eventually rise up from his descendants, followed by 11 chiefs. Now, if you're not familiar with chiefs and kings in the ancient Near East, um, those were people who had it made. <laughs> they, they were the picture of success. So as far as prosperity in the world is concerned, at the time, Esau did pretty well for himself. In fact, if you look at verse 7 of chapter 36, it says he had so many possessions that he couldn't even dwell in the same land as his brother Jacob. The land of their sojournings could not support them because of their livestock. Now, what sort of land was that? Well, what sort of land set Esau and his descendants on this onward and upward course to prosperity in the world? What land was that? It was the land of Canaan, right? Look at verse 5. These are the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. Verse 6, then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the members of his household, his livestock, all his beasts, and all his property that he had acquired in random places. No, in the land of Canaan. The land of Canaan was the place of divine blessing and favor. It was the land that God had promised to give Abraham and Isaac and his descendants. And these repeated references to the land of Canaan is the author's not-so-subtle way of telling us that Esau didn't create all these descendants and create all this wealth for himself out of nothing. He received it as a distinct gift from the hand of God. He received it. And that reminds us that in his common grace, the Lord entrusts all kinds of good things. Good things. Children, wealth, Positions of authority and influence, even to those who refuse to trust and obey him. He does that. And in Esau's case, he he experienced a very real measure, a taste of the blessing God promised his father Isaac back in Genesis 26, verse 3. What did God say to Isaac, his dad? Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you. And will bless you. And I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And will give to your offspring all these lands. Esau was one of Isaac's offspring. And he clearly prospered 
because of God's blessing. But, but hear this, friend. Esau didn't value God's blessing. He didn't trust God's promises. In Genesis 25, he, he disdains his birthright and the spiritual inheritance that was rightfully his as Isaac's oldest son. And, and his decision in, in verse 8 of chapter 36 to physically abandon the land of Canaan for the hill country of Seir reflected the same spiritual reality. What's that? Yahweh might be my family's God, but he's certainly not going to be my God. And his decision to, to marry Canaanite wives and to leave the land of promise proves as much. If you've been following Genesis for some time, it's the story of Lot all over again. And yet, this is what I want us to see in a particular way both Esau's departure from Canaan and the political power of his descendants fulfills the word of the Lord. That God spoke to his mom, Rebecca, Genesis 25, 30. This was before she gave birth to Esau and his twin brother, Jacob. Two nations are in your womb. Not just one, two. And two peoples from within you shall be divided. What's chapter 36 show us? Esau is becoming a nation and a whole bunch of peoples. And then a few chapters later, the Lord spoke again of Esau's future. This time through the mouth of his dad, Isaac. Genesis 27, 39. Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, Esau. And away from the dew of heaven on high, think out of Canaan. By your sword you shall live. Kings, chiefs, more chiefs. So the Lord doesn't explicitly say anything in Genesis 36. He doesn't appear to anyone, but everything Esau does and everything that his descendants go on to accomplish brings to pass exactly what God determined would happen long before it did. That's the point. So, so does Esau prosper even though he refused to follow the Lord? Yes. Does his prosperity, however, call into question the providence of God? No. No. To the contrary, it confirms it. It confirms it. Did you notice how many times in this first chapter we read the word Edom? So phrases like Esau, that is Edom, or Esau is Edom, or Esau the father of Edom, or in the land of Edom. By the end, I think, okay, okay, I get it, I get it, I get it. There's a connection, hello, I get it, between Esau and Edom. It's almost comical. If you track it, it shows up 10 different times. And we can think, what, what is the big deal? Esau is Edom. Well, it's actually a really big deal. It's a big deal because it was the Edomites who opposed the people of Israel, Jacob's descendants, in Numbers 20 and went right on to become one of the most formidable enemies, persecutors of the people of God. So for the original recipients of this book who knew well the danger of Edom, 
Eden wasn't just a name in a history book like it is for us. It represented a very real and present threat to their existence. And hear this, Edom typifies the enemies of God's people in every age. Friend, there are going to be many situations where you will see men and women who have no interest in trusting and obeying the Lord, who are actively resisting the authority of God in their life, prosper. They will will experience a measure of God's blessing, no less than Esau and the Edomites who descended from him. But please hear this. That doesn't mean God's not in control. Don't interpret that. The, The logic of this whole chapter, it works, if you would, from the lesser to the greater and goes like this. If the Lord fulfilled his sovereign purpose through the father of Edom, Esau, he will not fail to fulfill his sovereign purpose through all his descendants and all who join them in opposing and resisting the people of God in every age. So when you perceive the prosperity of the wicked... When in your soul, you agonize over the present success of those who say no to God's authority and oppose his people. Friend, when you perceive that, when you agonize over that, fear not, okay? The Lord your God is still reigning. He doesn't reign despite their prosperity, He sovereignly ordains their prosperity in such a way that his sovereign purpose ultimately prevails. And so this whole chapter, Genesis 36, in a very powerful way, bids us to stop interpreting the prosperity of the wicked as a reason to doubt God. And urges us to start recognizing the prosperity of the wicked as one more realm in which we have every reason to trust him. What does Jesus say in Matthew 5, 45? For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So friend, no matter where the rain falls, no matter who it prospers, know this, it's the Lord of heaven who sends it. It's the Lord of heaven who controls it. And it's, it's the Lord of heaven who uses even that rain to keep his promises and fulfill his purposes. His, his providence may be hidden in the lives of those who turn away from following the Lord, but it is no less real, no less present, and no less trustworthy, okay? So, so where do we see the providence of God? Exhibit A, the prosperity of the wicked. The wicked will prosper. Exhibit B, Second place we see God's providence, point number two, those who follow the Lord will suffer. Those who turn away from the Lord will prosper in the sense we just understood it. And those who follow the Lord will suffer. So look at Genesis 37, verse 2. It begins with the generations of Jacob, right? Esau's brother, an account of his descendants that's focused on Joseph till we get to the end of Genesis. But before we learn anything more about his descendants, 
Notice the author first makes a very critical distinction between what? Jacob and Esau. So follow me here. Where did Esau and his descendants live? Verse 43 of chapter 36. In the land of their possession. Right? Which is Edom. Where did Jacob and his descendants live? Chapter 37, verse 1. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. That's huge. It's critically important. Remaining in the land of his father's sojournings, please don't think this, it wasn't the ancient equivalent of going to church because your parents always took you to church. But by choosing to live in the place God promised to give him, the land of Canaan, Jacob not only demonstrated his faith in the Lord, but also his dependence on God's provision and blessing. So, So he's not maintaining some kind of family legacy in a traditional sense. He's expressing his faith in God in a very personal sense. And so the obvious connection is that what becomes of Jacob has everything to do with his choice to remain in Canaan and follow the Lord. And by the time we get to the end of Genesis 50, it's very clear that Jacob's descendants are immeasurably more blessed than Esau's descendants. But I have a warning for you here. Because for some of you, the next 14 chapters are very familiar. I warn you to not allow your knowledge of the way Joseph's story, Jacob's descendants, ends to dull your heart from feeling the weight of how it begins. Don't do that. So here's the big picture. The generations of Esau what becomes of Esau, immediately launch into this upward and onward rapid succession of chiefs and kings in Edom. Looking great. How about the generations of Jacob? What becomes of Jacob? Well, his descendants quickly devolve into a spiral of favoritism and rivalry and hatred and abduction and deception and grief and forced slavery and suffering. Wow. That motivates me to follow the Lord. (laughs) Now, now I'm not saying, friends, that, that Esau and his descendants escape those sorrows entirely. I am saying that the contrast between Genesis 36 and Genesis 37 sounds a whole lot like Psalm 73. Why do the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer? Riddle me that. There's no chiefs at the outset of the generations of Jacob. There there are no kings we're simply introduced to a 17-year-old teenager, Joseph, who's pasturing Jacob's flocks with some of his brothers. Look at verse 2. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Ouch. If you have a younger brother or sister, you know exactly what I'm talking about. 
Because this unfortunate young man just violated family unity rule number one. What's that? Younger siblings shall not tell on older siblings upon penalty of immediate death. And I'll truth be told, because we love to overread scripture sometimes and conclude things that it doesn't actually conclude. We, we, we don't entirely know whether Joseph is slandering his brothers or speaking the truth. Okay, that evil report can go both ways in scripture. I, I think the obediently submissive attitude that he demonstrates to his father Jacob, verses 12 to 13, suggests the latter. But regardless, the animosity between Joseph and his brothers isn't entirely his fault. Because his dad, Jacob, failed to learn something really important from his father, Isaac. And you know what that is? Favoritism wrecks families. Wrecks it. Jacob doesn't just like Joseph more than any of the other boys. He elevates Joseph to a public position of greater love and respect and admiration by giving him a very costly garment. Look at verse 4. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him, Joseph, more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. And in the midst of that oh-so-familiar family drama, something not-so-familiar happens. Joseph has a dream. But not just one dream, two dreams. In the first, look at verse 7. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. And behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. And in the second, look at verse 9. Behold, the sun and moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. And in context, the references are, are unmistakable. That's dad, mom, and all 11 brothers. Now, in Genesis, dreams and visions are one of the primary ways God speaks to his people. And you need to know that God still speaks to his people, reveals himself through dreams today, but <laughs> the primary and most authoritative way God speaks is what? Through his word, which governs and must interpret every dream and every vision. Nevertheless, in Genesis, you have a close relationship, association between dreams and divine revelation, indicating that Joseph's dreams are not idle fancies. That the Lord is, he's revealing his sovereign plan for Joseph's life. That's what he's doing. He's, he's, he's going to give him a position of authority over the entire family. Now, he doesn't give him any details. He doesn't give him a timetable. He doesn't give him five steps to greatness. He just gives him a quiet glimpse into the eternal providence of God. And, and it's easy to shake your head and wonder at, at Joseph's naivete, right? In, in relaying these dreams to his family, not just once, but twice. And it's also easy to understand why his father Jacob was, under, was deeply troubled. Why so? Because both dreams foretold a reversal of expectations, shattering the social customs of the time. 
Okay, so for all you young people who may not be aware of this, if you were a parent and especially a father in the ancient Near East, I don't care if you were a follower of Yahweh or not, you didn't bow down to your kids. They bowed down to you. But look at verse 11. Jake, Jacob's response, his father's response, reveals a humility here, keeping the saying in mind that Joseph's brothers lacked entirely. Because in verse 8, what do we see about the depth of their, their jealous resentment? Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Translation, family tensions are really high. And it gets even worse in verse 13 of chapter 37 when Jacob, also known as Israel, sends his young son, Joseph, to check on his brothers 50 miles away in Shechem. Look at verse 18. They saw him from afar, and before he came near, they conspired against him to kill him. And they said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of the pits. And then we'll say that a fierce animal has devoured him and we'll see what will become of his dreams. Now, in case you're wondering, that then we'll see isn't idle curiosity. <laughs> That's sarcasm. They hated the thought of their brother's dreams coming true. And they were determined to do everything they could to make sure they never would. So Reuben manages to talk them out of actually murdering Joseph. And Judah coldly suggests that they sell him as a slave instead of taking his life. And a passing caravan of Ishmaelites, also called Midianites, is all too happy to oblige. And so you have 20 shekels of silver and a slotted goat later. And the deed is done. Jacob is racked by grief and none the wiser. Joseph's suffering was very real, friends. Think about it. By, by stripping him of his robe, they stripped him of his identity, of an assurance of his father's favor. They, they threw him into a pits, no food, no, no water. They even had the audacity, verse 25, to sit down and eat while Joseph cried for help. Imagine that. He's abandoned. He's isolated. He's utterly forsaken. I, I, does that sound familiar? I mean, the circumstances of his life and the physical and emotional suffering he experienced might be different on the surface from what we experience. But I would argue it's, it's the same categories. Same categories. You, you think you're doing what God wants you to do. You think you're obeying the voice of your heavenly father. No, no less than Joseph obeyed the voice of Jacob. But, but the downward spiral of relational conflict and, and anger in your life just keeps getting worse. And before too long, the, the joy and excitement you, you once felt in the promises of God just comes crashing into the cold wall of a stone cistern, as it were. But wait, 
Maybe they've had a change of heart. They're, they're lifting me out. Things are looking up. Well, not really. <laughs> we just told you. And these cold-hearted traders are gonna take you as far as possible from the land of Canaan. Have fun with that, dreamer. You ever been in a situation where you think, at least it can't get any worse? And then it does. So where's the good news here? Where's the comfort? I mean, tell me, Matthew, you're going to turn to Genesis 50 and remind me that what man intended for evil, God meant for good. No, I'm not. I'm not. And the reason I'm not, friend, is that most of our life is spent living in Genesis 37. Right? We, we don't know yet exactly how all things will work together for good for those who choose to follow Jesus. So, so where do we turn for hope and help in the midst of our life in the meantime? Would you feel that weight, right? We turn here, friend. We turn to the hidden providence of God. Hidden providence of God. Listen, do you think it was a mere chance that a man found Joseph wandering in the fields near Shechem? Do you think it was mere chance that that exact same man had weeks earlier, days earlier, overheard Joseph's brothers discussing where they were going to travel? Do you think it was mere chance that at the very hour his brothers are plotting their demise, a caravan of Ishmaelites from Gilead making the multi-month, hundreds of mile journey down to Egypt to sell their wares happened to come into view? Right then. What was, was Reuben's sudden compassion or, or Judah's greedy mercy or, or even the, the parental favoritism that just launched this whole mess, was all that just an unusually bad twist of fate? Friend, Joseph's dreams at the outset of this story remind us that, that Joseph's suffering, no less than our own, is not the product of chance. Not, okay? Even the suffering of God's people is directed by the hidden providence of God. And his sovereign hand is directing the most painful events in this chapter. Even as Joseph's life and the pain in it goes from bad to worse. Less painful to more painful. But I, but I can feel the objection. At least I can hear it in my own mind. Matthew, God hasn't given me any dreams. I mean, at least, if, at least Joseph had dreams. I'm just in a pet. <laughs> he could cling to them, right? I mean, theoretically. Hope in them. 
believe somehow that, that things would turn out, think positive thoughts. I mean, all, all I have is an unreasonable spouse, an estranged child, a terminal illness, and a deepening depression. Oh, friend, you're right. God hasn't given you any dreams. God hasn't given you a glimpse into the future circumstances of your life on earth. He's given you something far better. Something that provides a far better comfort. A far better assurance then the providence of God, both the prosperity of the wicked and the suffering of the righteous will work together for your good and his glory. You know what he has given you? It's not dreams. He's given you himself. What do you want more? For there is another son whom the father promised to exalt not only over his own family, but to his own right hand. Far and above every ruler and power and authority, both in this life and in the age to come. He too was innocent. He too was stripped of his garments. He too was thrown into a pit of suffering and scorn and rejection. He too was betrayed for a handful of silver coins. Except in his case, he wasn't allowed to live. He was brutally murdered. He was slain by a jeering crowd who were jealous of the favor he had with the people in charge and despised the very thought of submission to his authority. Why did he die? Acts 2.23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge, think providence of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning this son, I saw the Lord always before me. For he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced and my flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life and you make me full of gladness with your presence. Christian, listen, if if through faith and repentance you have been united with Christ, then you don't just have a dreamy glimpse of your future. You know what? You have a certain, solid, reliable, flesh and blood, resurrected from the dead, living and abiding testimony that your suffering will not fail to end in glory. That's what you've got, okay? Jesus' story is your story. And it's the certainty of his resurrection. Not a dreamy mirage. The historical fact that reminds you and assures you that the road of obedient suffering that ends in glory is infinitely better than the road of worldly prosperity that ends in death. Assures you of that. So so make no mistake, okay? Because of the reign and rule of King Jesus, the prosperity of the wicked 
will not last forever. What does Asaph conclude? Psalm 73, 18, as he considers the final end. Speaking of the wicked, truly you, God, set them, the wicked, in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. Oh, they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Edom's prosperity was real, but, but you know what else? So was her inevitable judgment. Okay, think Amos chapter 1, verse 11. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because he pursued his brother. Who's that? Israel. With the sword and cast off all pity and his anger tore perpetually and he kept his wrath forever. So I will send a fire upon Teman and it shall devour the strongholds of Basra in Edom. And in the providence of God, friend, this you need to know, the ultimate judgment of the wicked is just as certain as the ultimate vindication of the righteous. So when we inevitably suffer as the people of God, what do we do? We exhort, we encourage one another with these words, 1 Peter 4. Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Or as Asaph goes on to say, Psalm 73, 24, you guide me with your counsel. Think hidden providence. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. The whole point, fearful saint, is that Jesus' story is your story. And, and that through the power of almighty providence, the Lord will bring your redemption to pass. But while we're waiting for that, while we're still suffering, remember Genesis 36 and 37. Remember, those who turn away from the Lord will prosper. Those who follow the Lord will suffer. But neither reality is the product of chance. Both of them, prosperity of the wicked, suffering of the righteous, are directed to their appointed end by the hidden providence of God. So how does that help us? Well, I think to conclude, I can do no better than the 10th question of the same catechism, which says this. Because of God's providence, we can be patient when things go against us, thankful when things go well, and for the future, we can have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that nothing will separate us from his love. Nothing. All creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will, they can neither move nor be moved. So here's the bottom line. When you see the prosperity of the wicked, when you see the suffering of the righteous, take heart, friend. Your God reigns. Providence will prevail. You are not God. Other people are not God. But there is a God and he is the Lord, your God. 
And through your suffering, he will hold you. Through your suffering, he will keep you. Through your suffering, he will redeem you. And at the end of your suffering, he will not fail to restore you. I leave you with these words from Dr. Bruce Waltke. God makes the most surprising choices. Here, he chooses a family divided by favoritism, immaturity, jealousy, and vengeance. Yet he will bring about his purposes through them. And in the process, will bring about their radical transformation and restoration. The road to kingship in Israel is much more tortuous than in Edom. Why? Why? Because the elect must be redeemed before they rule. Christian, the Lord in his good and perfect providence is right now using your inexplainable getting worse suffering to bring his good and perfect purposes in your life to pass. Let's pray for help to trust him. Lord Jesus, we need you. We need you to still and quiet our souls. Because when we see the prosperity of the wicked and when we see the suffering of the righteous, our default is to flip out and freak out and throw both those things back in your face as reasons to doubt you, to not trust you. And so, Lord, to that end, I pray that you would use this word this morning to open our eyes to see that in both the prosperity of the wicked and the suffering of the righteous, your hidden providence is on the move. Not just despite those things or around those things, but ordaining them, directing them, guiding them just like you did in Genesis. You're the same God. And we pray for a heart that would be quicker to trust and slower to doubt. We want to believe. Help our unbelief. Amen.